You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. going to happen i am going to get to go to blacksburg before i throw a rock wow i will be allowed back in a college football stadium before i throw a curling rock since the pandemic started that's what's going to happen so when do you think you're going to get to throw a rock um i don't know probably my next bond spiel okay i'm going to go coach next weekend so oh are you do you mean you're going to be organizing a practice i'm going to be organizing a practice is that a good segue for this episode it's as good (laughs) as we've ever done (laughs) i guess if we're like skilled we shouldn't even just say that we're doing a segue but But no we are we are invoking one of my favorite athletes of all time for this episode jonathan i think you asked me do you have anything you want to talk about and i was like you know a lot of people are going to be getting access to extra practice ice for the first time in probably like 18 months in a lot of places. We might as well talk about how to organize an efficient practice and there's no one really better to talk about it than you. Yeah. Cause I get to practice so much. <laughs> well, I haven't practiced in like, uh, almost two years. <laughs> no, but you organize them. I do. I do. Sometimes. So, what do you want? What are your questions? Fire away! I'm the guest today. You're the, so yeah, you Jonathan. Me, you have to introduce me first of all. So, joining us, our special guest today from Southampton, England. Sometimes he hosts this podcast. It's Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. I've always wanted to be a guest on this podcast, Ryan. I've got to confess; it's been on my lifelong dream to be a That's guest. That's a lie. Well, like a three-year dream. Again, that's a lie. No one <laughs> wants right. to be a guest on this podcast. Everyone's just like, why on earth do you want to talk to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So what are your questions? What's your first question? Here's the first question for you, Jonathan. How many hours of practice ice do you think that I've had in my lifetime as a curler? How many hours of curling practice do you think I've done? Uh, All right. Did you go to that mini camp that we did in Dallas? No. So I'm going to say zero. That is correct. I have practiced (laughs) all of zero minutes in my life. It has been all games and bond spiels. I have never practiced. I would say that's probably 90% of curlers fall into your category of never practicing ever. And we've got a, I mean, there's a bunch of us who haven't thrown a rock in 18 months. Would you suggest that we try to get some practice time before returning the leagues? Maybe. I mean, I think it depends. Like, I'll be honest. Like, I think, okay, my, my personal view is 90% of curlers, or just an observation, 90% of curlers never practice mm-hmm. um, with some, what I would call deliberate practice or coaching, which is slightly different. We can talk about the difference between those today. I think a lot of people could improve their game significantly. 
And I actually, th- here's my rule of thumb. I actually think with like 20 hours of proper coaching, someone could could significantly improve their game from being like a not so great club curler to a fairly strong club curler or from, you know, a good club curler to being perhaps a competitive, competitive curler or stepping onto the competitive scene. I actually think at those early levels, 20 hours spread over a season can actually lead to very big improvements. Now, if you want to do like the higher up that curve, you want to go the way more the practice time shoots up. Right. So if you're like gunning for like Olympics, you're probably on the ice two to four hours a day, nine, 10 months of the year. Yeah, right? you're shooting so, for that, what, that 10,000 hours, whatever it is. Ten, well, beyond 10,000 hours, it's like you're doing, I mean, that that high level, it's like, it's your job, basically, right? Like, for mm-hmm. the Nicodines of the world, it's their, it is literally their job. And so, it's not reasonable, I think, for the 99% of curlers to, to compare themselves to that mark. But if you're someone who, let's say, you know, curls one or two times a week in club and you've been doing it for several years and you want to get better. I actually think that maybe strategically putting some of the time and some of the money that you might put into playing in bond spiels or in league play and putting that towards practice and coaching, that might actually help help you kind of take a pretty big step and enjoy your game a little bit more. So what, what does an hour of practice ice look like for someone who's a professional curler? And is that, is, is that something that would make a, a rec league curler better or should their hour of practice time look completely different? That's a good question. I think, I think it, in some ways it'll look similar in other ways it'll look really different. So, uh, some of the things elite curlers work on is is actually not that different from what club curlers can work on. So in a certain sense, it's it's like line of delivery, balance, mm-hmm. weight control, all of that. But but the the pros are often doing it at such a high level of repetition that I think a club curler might find that boring. Like it could very well be you're going and working on your intern at board weight for an hour. Right, oh, which wow. for your average club curler, well, I mean, that's the same in any sport, right? You get to a certain high level mm-hmm. and you're just drilling. If you're, you know, your basketball player, maybe just be drilling three point shooters. If you're a golfer, might be practicing your putt, whatever it is. It's just like building that repetition in so that every time you do that, it's, um, it's, uh, it's automatic. I, I actually think even at the high level, practice is not, it's probably an area which is still hasn't been kind of fully teased out. Like if you listen to, say some of the publicly available discussion of what practice is from like say Kevin Martin on his podcast, or there was an interview on uh, with the legends of curling podcast with Earl Morris, like a lot of their practice, like Earl Morris is like, yeah, I just would go throw a hundred stones a day. And probably half of that would just be throwing draws. And I would throw like 20 intern draws and 20 outturn draws. And I do that every day, all season. You see basically said by the end of the season, I would let a stone go and I could tell exactly where it would be like within within six inches. Mm. Right. And that's like, he basically drilled in draw weight doing that. Um, so, so that's really what I would call shot making practice where you're just practicing shots and that's important. But I think, um, a lot of other stuff's kind of come on lately. So one thing I think is really taken off in the last decade is like sweeping practice. Like I think no one really thought about sweeping technique or sweeping practice, but I think a lot of the pro teams now, spent a lot of time just on footwork on kind of timing and communication hmm. strategies and drilling that. Uh, I think a lot of our 
like technical knowledge about how to improve a deliveries, really how to kind of correct delivery faults has improved over the last say 20 years. And so a lot of the kind of high end people really work on that too. I think that's another area where a lot of club curlers could maybe avail themselves of a coach and just even a, a couple of sessions with a coach who say a level two or up might help them that way too. So there's, there's a lot of different things you can kind of transfer from like the pro level back to the club level. For me, if I were to get an hour of practice time on uh, at the, at uh, at the ice zone here in South Richmond, um, what should my hour look like? All right. So okay. So question. So first question is, what are we talking about here? You're just like I've come back from. So you're like this is you. You're coming back. You haven't thrown in mm-hmm. 18 months. Yep. I would actually say the first time you get back on the ice, you should try to just get some practice ice in and just practice the basic motions. Um, so part of it is just refamiliarizing yourself with your delivery. Uh, like the second or third time I went back on the, uh, the ice this summer, I totally wiped out of my throw. Like I basically got up there, mm-hmm. ran on the ice to play a game because I was running late because of the traffic on the drive up. And uh, yeah, my second or third slide, I just took a total face plant on the ice, which I don't normally do. So, um, you know, I think, I think the, the, the point of that is that we're all out of kind of curling shape, if yeah. you will. And just like the little stabilizer muscles, the basic balance, um, just getting the feeling, getting the feeling for weight, for timing, all of that. I would just probably, or me, I'd probably start off warm up slides, maybe doing a few kind of basic balance drills. Uh, and then just start throwing stones to just get that feel back. And then after an hour or two, maybe rest and kind of see how you feel the next day. And if you can get ice again shortly after that, just do it again until the the delivery kind of comes back and feels natural. You know, it's funny. uh, Yesterday, I took my son to go and hit baseballs off a tee for like the first time in his life. And so it was at a friend's house. And so I decided to take a few cuts myself and I have not swung a baseball bat since the Bush administration. <laughs> so it took, it took like five swings before I was like, Oh, I remember how to do this now. And then <laughs> sat there, hit the ball, hit the ball. And then of course, like later on that day, I like bent down to pick up a box and my back just went. I was like, I, I bet, I, I bet two, I bet these two things are related. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I can't imagine I used the muscles that you used to swing a baseball bat. I can't imagine I've used those since the Bush administration. <laughs> yeah, so I, I curling, same thing, right? Especially with curling, there's a lot of these like little stabilizer muscles that I think mm-hmm. most people, when they come back on the ice after the, even just like a normal summer layoff, they notice after their first couple of sessions that they really hurt, right? So just even just getting back the motion first, and I think that. That's kind of the first thing. And then I guess the question, the next question is like, how much time could you devote? And obviously I think if you're an arena curler, practice isn't all that realistic, right? Just because, because um, ice times, whatever. Now, I don't have 360 bucks to, <laughs> to go yeah. spend on practice for, for one hour of practice ice for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, that's 360 is what it would cost to rent an hour of ice time at your ice hockey arena. Right. So I think I think it was in a, if there's arena curlers listening to this, I think the two best well, there's basically three ways you can get practice. Easiest way is to find the nearest dedicated facility and try to work out a deal with them where you go there and book some ice time 
where you practice or when you're going to a bond spiel at a dedicated club, maybe go a day early and, and email them and say, hey, can we get some practice ice before before the event and maybe throw for an hour or two that way? Uh, and the second thing I think is a lot. there's a lot of camps out there, especially now there's a lot of adult camps that really cater to the club curler. So there's like the Hot Shots camp and USCA mm-hmm. does a camp and over in Europe, WCF runs a camp and Scottish curling runs an adult camp. So... Uh, our friends from Polish curling talked about how they ran a camp. So if you just kind of Google around, there's there's way more curling camps now for adults than there were even like 10, 15 years ago. So they're normally during the summer or early autumn, and I'd kind of target one of those. And that's that's basically replace a bond spiel with that. And you'll get top-level coaching, three days of that, and a lot of feedback, and you'll probably learn a lot and improve your game a lot that way. And the third option would just be to go for a weekend to a club and just do it for practice with some of your buddies and see if there's a coach there who could work with you a bit. And you've, so you've curled at a bunch of places, including some pretty big clubs like Montreal West and, um, and the St. Paul curling club. How does practice ice work at clubs like that? So honestly, uh, it depends where, so in Canada, Montreal West, like this is, this is like 20 years ago, right? Uh, but basically, and I think still for most clubs, it's this way is basically if you're a member and there's open ice time, you can go practice. How often is that? And what time of day are those, are those open ice times usually taking place? Uh, it's going to vary from club to club, but like Montreal West was basically dead all day apart from maybe senior men's or senior women's and maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit of junior or high school. So you could pretty much until six o'clock get open ice. And if you're, if you're an active club member and the key thing is stay on the good side of your ice tech, (laughs) um, uh, then, then you can normally just kind of get ice through that. If you're, if you're under that setup now in Scotland, it's a bit different because often there, the rink is not owned by the club members. Mm-hmm. And so there you normally have to book the ice and pay for ice time. And that could be depending on the rink, anything from five pounds to, to 10 or 12 pounds for per person for practice session. Um, and so, you know, that that's another option. So you just kind of, if, if that's the setup there, you just pay and some places may have a, a deal for kind of rink members. Others may not, but uh, you just kind of pay for your time. And again, it's it's often you're taking ice time, which is quiet when there's not leagues going on. But even fairly busy rinks normally have ice time available, especially during the daytime. So what? And what about access to coaching? I don't. So to me, this is like a big area where curling it's getting better again. But I think it's mm-hmm. a big area that curling needs to address. Um, you know, a lot of other sports. Like you take up tennis. Tennis club has a tennis pro. Golf club mm-hmm. has a golf pro. A lot of curling ranks, it's basically someone around is kind of maybe maybe known as kind of the person you go to to fix your delivery. Some clubs and some places have fantastic people. Other clubs may just not have the depth in that. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think first curlers are very cheap. <laughs> like I can think I can think of a few times where people are just like, can't this Olympian come down to our, our club and just teach us some curling for free. <laughs> and then when the person's like, no, I actually charge this rate. The club gets pissed off. I think, you know, a few stories like that too. And it's like, you know, like I can't imagine any other sport where people would expect instruction for free. Right. 
And I think mm-hmm. there's a bit, because curling's got this grassroots volunteer thing, I think there's a lot of expectation that coaches do that. And, you know, sometimes if they're with buddies or stuff, they'd be happy to. But um, I actually think curling at the club levels perhaps got to get a little bit of a, yeah, there's value in paying coaches. And if you put a bit of money to that, that'll probably incentivize people to, to do their levels and perhaps develop their skills in terms of how to, how to work with club curlers. And um, perhaps there'll be a little bit more demand for that and a bit more of a market for that. And, and again, some clubs may have that, but I think still a lot to my, to my experience don't really have that kind of a resource built in. So could someone, like if they don't have access to a coach at their club or a club that's close by, could they just video their delivery and send it to you? Yeah. <laughs> so wants to do that. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm happy. I mean, I'm happy to talk or, you know, or, or depending on where they are in the world, if I know someone else, I can kind of also refer them to someone too, but that's pretty, it's like an easy video analysis of a delivery is pretty easy. I think sometimes the corrections are tricky over the internet. Like I'll, if I'm actually working with someone correcting their delivery, it's a lot of kind of literally hands-on, like adjusting the body and like, um, you know, perhaps setting up a few obstacles for them to to navigate through. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that if people reach out to the, the podcast or if they're like really far away and there's a more practical local solution, I can help help them figure that out too. And then how how easy is that to set up, and like what angles do you need in order? Does a would a what angles would a coach need in order to make an accurate assessment of a delivery? And then how what's the easiest way to set that up? So for me, I like to look from behind, from head on, and from sideways, and I may try to do like a three quarter angle also. Um, so basically, every angle. Every angle and so, <laughs> to be, and to be honest, like from, from behind, I can, from behind, honestly, I can tell a lot. And it's just like, I'm kind of looking at how they pull back and what they do with their footwork and how their body weight shifts head ons mm-hmm. kind of pretty good to see like their release and what's going on there. And then from the side, I'm kind of looking at, um, how they get into their full slide. If there's any fun, funny things about how they're transferring their weight into the delivery, the slide phase. So, or with, if they're doing anything weird with their, their arms or shoulders. So, um, you know, I, I think for most curlers, the faults are pretty similar until you get to kind of a high level. Um, but, uh, and so I, I'm kind of looking for like common faults and anyone who's done a level two course, pretty much anywhere in the world, that's normally what's taught there. I think, I think they're good. That's kind of a good starting point. Then it's just kind of working with that over time. You kind of see, see the habits and figure out what the corrections are. And then in terms of practice in order to correct those faults, like what's a, what are your typical coaching points on that? If you're going into, if you're going into a practice session and the purpose of the practice session is to correct a delivery fault, like what, what are, what are some of the the coaching points when you're going into that? So is it with the coach or are they practicing on their own? Uh, in our, I don't know, whatever you, this, this is our scenario, man. You can, all right. Well, well, the make best it whatever is actually, you want. Okay. So the, we're making the best, believe here, okay. man. <laughs> making believe. All right. So like the best would be working with a coach, correcting your faults. And it's, this is going to depend on kind of patience and age level. But I think for like, let's say the same adult club curler, who's got a bit of patience, Probably working with a coach on your fault. <laughs> there are like, none of those. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you're willing you might to just as well be coaching Puff and, the Magic Dragon, yeah, Jonathan. Maybe, but let, let's say you kind of be in. You're like, oh, I'm starting my intern. 
And so I kind of figure out that actually the reason you're starting your intern is you're sliding wide and you're kind of dumping it back in, which is like a very- All right, wait, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you. Talk me through that. What's that? What's that mean? So, all right. So most, all right, most club curlers, they look, often it's the skip, they'll look at the other end and they'll be like, you missed. And the reason you missed is because you, you got your stone going. So just imagine, we st- like the, uh, our friends of Game of Stones, they always say, don't dump that intern. I think what they actually yep. mean is don't start that intern. Because the common fault is someone basically slides at the broom or perhaps a little wide of the broom. And when they release it, they create motion that makes it curl more. So it okay. breaks in. So often it's called starting your intern. Um, and so there's a bunch of reasons why that can happen. But often the most common reasons, actually not so much the release, although we might want to look at that. But it's that someone's doing something that makes them drift wide. And then their body is naturally correcting by bringing the stone back towards the broom. And they're overcorrecting, which means the stones then got a lot of kind of sideways momentum. And that's what mm-hmm. is kind of, kind of commonly causes okay. a side of fault. So that's like, that's like a very common fault. And the, the flip side is like a dumped out turn. So people kind of tend to slide narrow or kind of drift narrow and then set it out. And so basically... If, if that was the fault, we'd kind of look at what's causing that. It's, there's, and often it's like all the way down chain. It could even just be like how you're setting up your body in the hack. Mm-hmm. Often it's that you might be putting too much weight on your hack foot and not enough on your slide foot when you set up. So you're kind of tilting your hips and you're kind of loading up that way. And that's mm-hmm. kind of loading you down your shoulder. And, and then all of a sudden you're kind of getting your body a little bit crooked in the hack. And that then leads to a crooked slide, which then leads to you being a bit off angle, drifting a bit and starting your intern. Right. So if, if that's the problem we're trying to address, it could take an hour or it could take a couple of, of hour long sessions of you working with a coach just to correct the kind of correct the muscle memory, if you will, until you feel comfortable with that slide in that position. And then you maybe go play in the game, see if that works, come back and correct it. So it could take, and sometimes it could take like a while. It could take, you know, a week, two weeks, sometimes a month to correct that kind of a fault. But once you do, you'll kind of make a lot more shots. And hopefully if you start doing it again and again, you can then correct back. So if you are going to change technique, grip, whatever, and I'm asking this because I know that you, the, the last time that you played in a big tournament, you made the executive decision to like completely change your delivery uh, right before that tournament. Um, yeah. If you are going to make a change like that, uh, when should you do it and how much practice time is enough before you deploy it in a game? Yeah, don't do it before your big competition. <laughs> and I knew that. But anyway, we'll, we won't get into why that happened. But I knew that and uh, I paid the price. So um, sh- short answer is you should do it at the start of the season. Um, ideally, you'd want I, – I, if it were me, I would say you would want to make any change to your deliveries – 90 days out from competition. Okay. If that's like 90 days out. If you're going to do like a, you want all your like delivery stuff fixed 90 days out. And then I personally find it takes about a month and I would actually to be on the safe side, put in six weeks for muscle, muscle memory to kick in. It's four to six weeks. You got to allow for it, which also means by the way, if you're making a big change to your delivery, you should actually expect to go backwards in your performance before you go forwards. 
because mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have to think about oh, yeah. the changes you're making. And anytime you're like consciously thinking about your movements, you're not going to throw as well or play as well. It's basically, it's, you got to kind of think about it until it becomes automatic. And the only way to kind of address that is repetition. And I think four to six weeks of like three to four times a week on the ice is what it would take to make a, a significant change to your delivery. So expect to take a few L's the first few weeks of league if you decide to, to make those changes before going out on the ice here in September, basically. Yeah, and it depends on your situation. But if you've got time, I'd recommend kind of early in the season, that's when you make those changes. The flip side is, I actually think a lot of people waste the end of the season. So let's say your big competitions in February. I think a lot of people, once their mm-hmm. run for whatever they're in ends, they maybe just play out the rest of the string of their games and pack it up. And that's kind of mm-hmm. natural and normal. But actually, under normal, under pre-COVID situations, like a two-year layoff is kind of a lot. But under like a, in a normal season, let's say you're done in February with your competitive stuff. You still have March and April. So you still got eight weeks left. That's also a really good time to maybe sit down, uh, think about what you want to fix in your game, and maybe spend some time there just doing that. You don't really care about the, the owls in club play, say. Or especially during those last chance bond spiels in May, April and May, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a classic. It's, it, well, people do muck around with that. I mean, those last chance bond spiels were also or back in the old days, like before the kind of competitive, like the pro tour popped up. Those were like the kind of classic try out your lineup for next year kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, a, you know, like there was a few, there's a few spiels in kind of March and April where it was like, okay, you're kind of talking with, you've kind of broken up with your team after you lost tanker to play downs in January, <laughs> found a new team and, you know, you want to see if it's going to work. So you try to grab one of those March or April spiels to test your, your new lineup out was kind of a classic, which is also, I think part of, part of the season too is it's not just individual practice I think team practice matters a lot too so when you're on your own like if you just get you know practice ice on your lunch break uh if you're on your own you know are you setting up scenarios for shots and trying to work on a specific scenario or are you mostly just like trying to get your draw weight down uh like me well it depends on what i'm working on so I'll run through a couple of things. So one thing I often do at the beginning is just a set of balance drills. So like I honestly balance the most important thing for the delivery. And there's, there's kind of like, Mm -hmm. so, and it's always the hardest thing to maintain because you're always just, you know, it's, you're on ice and it's slippery. So I'll often use it as kind of part warm up, part, just kind of checking things. And basically what I mean by balance drills is often I just kind of make the, the delivery harder so maybe i'll start off with maybe i'll start off with like broom flat on the ice for a couple of warm-up slides just to get my hips open and then i'll kind of slide broom with the broom and like my hand empty or with a stone just kind of normal curling slide then i'll either kind of take the broom away and kind of slide try to slide without a broom kind of get balanced that way or I may kind of do something like hold something while I'm sliding, like hold the broom off the ice. So I've got like, I've got to do something to keep myself steady or like a classic camp drills, have someone hold an umbrella up while they do it. And then yes. maybe after I've done that and I feel comfortable with my balance, maybe I'll start throwing some stones without a broom. So I'm just trying to throw completely balanced. And I'll just kind of increase the weight over time. And so the, the ideal should be to throw a perfectly straight peel 
with no broom. So you're completely mm. perfectly balanced. And there's actually, I remember seeing some videos a few years ago of like team Adeen they posted on Twitter and it was like them with a laser at the other end of the ice, tracking their balance, kind of like perfectly balanced symmetrical using like Dartfish or one of the video tracking technology, throwing peels. And they're practicing that too, because they just want perfect balance when they throw a peel right up stick. And if you take, if you basically don't have a broom, your, your delivery is not going to lie. So there's any speed wobbles that'll kind of show your faults pretty quickly. So that's like a big warm up. Um, then it kind of depends what I'm working on. I, I could try, if I'm by myself, I might figure out a way to be like, we have like a lot of cones at our rink, which I think any, every rink should actually own a set of cones just as like a, a cheap, safe kind of way to kind of slide through a barrier. Uh, and so then I'll just kind of, Either I'll practice sliding through the cones. So I'll set up cones, say, at the T-line, top of the house, halfway to the hog, at the hog, and try to slide through them holding the stone. And that's just kind of, again, checking my line of delivery. And so if I kind of get offline, I'll knock one of the cones over so it kind of gives me instant feedback. So that's one classic. Or I may put the create like a gates halfway down. And just use that as a way to test how straight I am kind of on my line that way and see if I can throw through the, the port there. Uh, and then if I'm working on weight control, really simple is just draw, <laughs> draw to the button. Try to throw as many draws as you can to the button. And I actually personally, I, I keep a little notebook and I've got a scoring system for that. Uh, or the other one I really like is it's called um, progressive hog line where you basically try to throw your first stone just over the hog line that becomes the new hog line. Then you throw another stone and wherever that stops becomes the next hog line. And so the trick is to try to get all 16 stones to count. And if you throw one a little bit too heavy, it gets tough, right? So eventually you get to the end and you're going to have maybe two, three feet at the back that you've got to hit. And especially if it's just you sweeping, that can be quite tricky. Uh, and then sometimes if I'm feeling really ambitious, I'll do progressive. So I'll throw eight or 16 and then I'll throw what I call regressive. So I'll throw from the back line up. And so the, I like that drill because what it's teaching you is how to adjust your weight. Cause a lot of mm-hmm. times in ga- how often has this happened in games where it's been like, just throw it three feet more or just throw it three feet less, yep. right? Either you're, you're adjusting for a miss or you've got to get the guard up. Or you've got to get it around a guard or you just throw in a guard. So the, this drill really helps me kind of get the feel for just adding a little bit of weight or taking a little bit of weight off. So that's like a good weight control drill. Uh, a fun one. Uh, it's like called chase the A. So you basically throw a draw down to the rings and then you hit it and you keep hitting it. And the idea is to hit and stick around and see how many in a row you can get. And then if you peel out, then you draw again. And if you've missed, then you start your count again at zero. And you just kind of count how many in a row you can hit. And again, the perfect score there is 15, one draw and 15 hits in a row. Which is, again, if you're by yourself, that's pretty tricky to, to kind of make 15 mm-hmm. hits in a row. Um, so those are all like kind of basic shots, yeah. That's kind of my next question is what, what drills do you think actually make a difference in game or, or in, translate best to in-game success? Are there, is it, are there um, any others besides those or, or are some of those more about, I don't know, figuring things out rather than translating to in-game success? It sounds like the, the progressive hog or working back to, or working back to front or kind of the two that, that really do help. 
Uh, it, so it depends on me by in-game success, but I, I remember like talking and working with a sports psychologist maybe four or five years ago, and his opinion was the best kind of practice was a practice situation that forced you to make a shot under pressure for which there were stakes. And so he would actually say, so he actually thought those, these point-keeping things were really good and basically trying to beat yourself. And his advice was mm-hmm. actually have a competition with another teammate and the the loser has to buy lunch or has to buy a coffee or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And it's partly for pride and it's partly for pressure. And it, his point was the hardest part of moving from practice to game is that pressure and executing under pressure. And so you actually want to practice the pressure too. That makes sense? Yep. So uh, there's, like a, there's the like a classic the one. the toughest thing to simulate. Yeah, so there's a classic one I know about with which I got a few high level coaches have done when they're working with with skips, and they'll just be like, they'll basically tell the skip, you don't know when, you don't know where, but um, sometimes during practice, every single practice session, I'm going to say draw the button, and you have to make a draw the button, and we're not going to go back to practice until you make a draw the button. So everyone else on the team is stopped or they're sweeping, and that's like mm-hmm. putting pressure on the skip. And the point is the skips, because in a game. You don't know when you're going to have to make that draw against four, but you're going to have to make that draw against four, right? (laughs) And like you look at Edine in the world finals this year, he had to make first end, he had to make a draw against four, right? To the button, a tough draw against four, right? The only way to get comfortable with that is the experience. And so practicing that kind of pressure draw and like basically your teammates are going to be mad at you if you keep missing that button draw. So it's a good way to kind of force the, the skip to practice the pressure draw, which everyone knows they're going to have to make. So... Building in pressure is good too. Is there anything that you as a player during practice that, you know, as a player you thought it was stupid and now that you're coaching, you see that it actually works? Honestly, there was like so little coaching when I was a junior that (laughs) 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 like when I was a junior, it was basically go to the club, throw stones. And I think the, the one kind of drill we had was like sliding through stones. It's kind of the classic. You set the stones up as gates. Now it's with cones because um, that's like softer on you if you make contact with it at speed, <laughs> right? So um, less chance of injury. But like th- that was like the one drill we did. Um, and then it was a lot of just scrimmaging. We'd like play around and goof around. And uh, to be honest, I think that I actually think that's what's missing in kind of modern practice. Like I, I not, I, I'm sure there's lots of rink rats out there, but like the pre like contemporary junior practice is very structured. There's like lots of classic drills and drill manuals. And so mm-hmm. a lot of coaches kind of use all this stuff and there's, there's everyone can do video now there's lasers and speed traps and all this kind of stuff. Um, and actually just to be honest, I think there's something to be said for like just unstructured play. Like just goofing around, yeah. like just being 16, 17 year old at a curling rink. I probably learned more just messing around on the ice with friends, trying dumb stuff. Uh. <laughs> I mean, you hear that in every sport, though. You hear that in hockey a lot, that there's too much structure and, you know, kids aren't learning skating and, and skills and puck handling skills. Um, you hear it. Uh, I mean, you hear it in a lot of sports that. You know, yeah. They're coaching the fun out of it and they're coaching skill out of it. <laughs> yeah. There's like a class, I don't know if you've ever read, if any, uh, most Canadians, or at least Canadians of my generation, will have heard of Ken Dryden's The Game, which is like the yeah. classic hockey book. And he's got a whole rant in there about how 
one of the reasons the Soviets got better at ice hockey than the Canadians in the seventies and eighties is that they just would play it all the time and play it for fun. And like, they'd be mm-hmm. like, they, they'd be more skilled. Whereas Canada become a little bit more regimented and focusing too much on gameplay and practices and drills. Is there anything, is there anything that you shouldn't waste your time on during practice ice? Well, I, okay. So here's what I think, here's what I think people actually waste their time is they go there and they don't have any plan and they're just throwing stones. <laughs> right. And I actually think that, Again, if 90% of curlers don't practice ever, and I think that's true, probably there's, there's a kind of club curler who goes to the ice and they're like, I'm going to practice and I'm watching them and all they're doing is throwing stones up and down for like a couple of ends and that's it. And that's, to me, it's not quite a waste of time, but it's not, it doesn't really have a plan. It's not really focusing on something specific that you're trying to improve you're not measuring anything. And I think measuring what you're doing really matters and doesn't really have an accountability mechanism. And so let me just like be clear about that. So like the, like, I think it's pretty, the, the key with a practice is to figure out what thing do you want to work on now to improve your game and pick one or two things. Like you can't fix everything. So if it's takeouts, you should be practicing takeouts. If it's, you're missing draws, draws. If it's a release problem, you want to practice that release. Um, so you want to kind of have a purpose to practice and then you want to do activities that check that you're kind of correcting that thing. And so here's where like correcting the delivery fault with a coach, they're giving you feedback. So that's good. Or if you're working on takeouts, you want to do takeout drills that have some kind of scoring mechanism and you want to track what you score in and then track it over time. That makes sense? So mm-hmm. let's say so, let's say you want to work on takeouts and you do that chase the ace thing that I was talking about where you like kind of try to see how many hits in a row you can do. That's a really simple solo practice. Um, so basically the perfect score is 15. So you want to go out and maybe you want to go out for six sessions over the course of a month and see are your scores at the end better than they were at the beginning of the month. And, you know, are you getting a – let's say you start off making six out of 15 – Maybe by the end, you're making 12 or 13 out of 15. And that's like a, a noticeable improvement in your that skill. So you want to kind of define what you're trying to improve and you want to measure it and you want to keep yourself accountable somehow. It's basically just write stuff down. Yeah, just get a notebook and write down and keep and keep track. And, and honestly, like I think part of it's putting pressure on yourself to get better. Are you getting better? Because actually, sometimes you don't think you're getting better. And if you don't write it down, you actually know I was doing six before and now I'm doing eight. And that's actually a pretty big improvement. So you coach a lot of juniors. What is a, what's a junior practice look like? Like if you're, I'm sure there are some people listening who might be looking at getting into helping out at their rank by helping out with the juniors. Or, you know, if they're, if they listen to uh, our friends over at the coaching kids curling podcast, maybe they, maybe they help out with a little rocks program, but what's an hour look like for your junior teams. And then how do you, how do you keep juniors from getting bored? Okay. So it's going to depend on the level and um, the age because juniors can cover everything from like, you know, four or five year old little rockers to like 21 year olds. Right. And that's a very big difference (laughs) in ability and age and attention span in like all of that. So, but just like for club level juniors, I kind of like the, the rink manager at Fenton's, she would run the junior practice. I remember she said to me, her rule was every session, I want a skill, a drill, 
and a game. And that's it. That's that's basically so basically you have a bit of time. Maybe there'd be like a little warm-ups and stuff at the beginning, like maybe a fun warm-up. And then there'd be a brief like 15, 20 minutes talking about one skill, whatever that is, takeout, whatever it is you want to work on that day. Draw, sweeping, strategy, communication, how to use a stopwatch. Then some kind of drill that perhaps puts that skill to use, but maybe not directly, but like some kind of drill that kind of builds off that. And then some kind of game. And it could just be like playing a couple of ends. It could be a fun competition between two teams. Like there's a lot of just little different variations of scrimmage stuff. But basically the idea there is they learn something, they've been practiced that thing, and then they go play a game that's fun. And that's probably like as much as you'd want to do in a junior session. I think trying to do more than three things in a, in a, a club level junior sessions, um, tricky. Uh, if they're getting a bit more competitive, then probably you're working with the team. And maybe you're getting to the point where you're working on their delivery. So maybe it's it's the same kind of principle. Like you do a delivery component, like work on a delivery thing. Then you have a couple of drills for a problem area the team's working on. And then either one of the things I kind of do a lot with like the Sugden team is like a simulated end where like I'll, I'll throw the stones from like the far hog line. So I'm just standing there pushing the stones into the house and then they have to play against me. And I'm kind of like, we're, we're kind of like working up a strategic situation. So that's like a classic with them where I may play against them or I may have it go two against two and kind of I'll practice something that way. Maybe we have them do a mixed doubles end two against two. So you just kind of mix it up with like a scrimmagey situation. So similar kind of idea though. All right, Jonathan, Alan Iverson says we have spent about 45 minutes too much talking about practice. So I've got a few quick hitters for you here at the end. All right. First, how much time should you spend on sweeping? How on earth do you practice sweeping anyway, other than just sweeping your skip shots during practice? Well, we're going to take another 30 minutes on this. So <laughs> I could do a whole episode on sweeping. Okay. First of all, again, I think go, a really Go back quick and listen to our episode with Stephanie Thompson, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, A, listen to that. B, I think honestly improving your sweeping is pretty easy to do again if you work with a coach or kind of someone who knows proper sweeping technique and I, I think it's a place where most club curlers can improve their game the most dramatically the biggest problem with sweeping is people don't spend any time doing footwork and footwork is really the foundation for sweeping technique most people either do this like weird face down the ice shuffle step or actually some people even sweep backwards where they're doing nothing or they do the classic foot fault is a crossover step. So they're like one mm-hmm. foot crossing over the other. The problem with both those techniques is you're then putting all of your body weight on your feet. And it's very hard to get your body weight over the brush head. And if you have no body weight over the brush head, you're not getting any pressure on the ice. And so your sweeping's doing nothing. So footwork's the key, I'd say. The classic kind of junior curling camp drill is taking two curling stones, one in each hand, and then practicing walking down the ice, doing the kind of classics, the proper kind of sweeping footwork without doing crossover steps. Uh, But the classics, it's probably hard to explain on a podcast, but you're basically trying to do crescent shape uh, sweeps with your feet as you kind of shuffle down the ice. Um, You can kind of watch the pros on TV and see their technique too. But it's, it's basically, you basically want to have 
at most one foot in and one foot back. You want to try to keep your back fairly flat and parallel to the ice. You want your head over the brush uh, and try to get as much body weight as possible over the brush. And the key there really is, is footwork. So that's the place you probably need to work on there. All right. Next up, how much time should teams spend practicing communicating and how do you practice communicating? All right. You can actually do a lot of the communication stuff off ice. I think actually maybe talking with your team, which I think, you know, maybe I, does your team even talk about communication? If not, that probably means they have a communication problem, right? <laughs> so, so maybe sit down and talk about what communication systems are you going to use? What are the signals? What weights are you going to use? What words are you going to use for those weights? What are you going to say when? Um, I actually think, again... A team going on the ice and spending an hour or two just working on their communication systems and practicing shots, focusing on how they're going to communicate could pay huge, huge dividends. Because I, I think a lot, of, a lot of shots are missed on communication errors. And so a team kind of figuring those things out and putting the time in to do that's great. You can also do that just by talking before and after the game and really thinking over the course of the season how you adjust. And I actually think that communication is a kind of a constant process that often what will happen is a communication error will lead to a missed shot at a key moment. And then that hopefully leads to a conversation after the game that you kind of address that problem so you don't make it the next time. But it's basically a recursive, recursive uh, thing that the whole team has to work on all the time. I've also heard Colin Hodgson talk about this. I think it was on the Brooms and Hacks podcast. He said, and I can't remember exactly what it was, either it was like during practice and they had to simulate a game and none of them were allowed to talk, or maybe yeah. it was that they, they maybe it was they were at a bond spiel and each game one of the four of them was not allowed to talk. Oh wow. <laughs> I mean, so the take so a classic one with juniors is takeaway. You basically start off and say, okay, no one can talk or communicate at all and play a couple of shots mm -hmm. and see how it goes. And then I think what's really interesting is you say, okay, you can't say any words, but figure out a way to communicate without saying words. And that's something that's pretty useful because that gets them to think about all the other ways we communicate without saying words. And then you add the words in. You say, okay, now what do the words do and what words do you want? And you kind of get the juniors to think about what information should they be communicating uh, on each shot? All right. Next up, what is the one thing that you can do during your practice ice time that is sure to anger your ice tech? <laughs> so when I was in St. Paul, there was an ice tech. Uh, he's at the club manager, Dex. And uh, he would get pissed off at me. <laughs> <laughs> I would go after school. So I was, in, I was in uni. I was a grad student at University of Minnesota. And the leagues there, we started at like 5, but my seminar would normally end at 2.30 or 3. So I'd take a bus down to St. Paul Curling Club. I'd go out. I would just throw a ton of stones. And he would get pissed because he's like, I just cut the ice, scraped it, and pebbled it, and you've gone and flattened the pebble. <laughs> <laughs> and so he'd always be like... Don't throw, you'd be like, don't throw a hundred stones, John. Like you can throw like 16, but don't go throw a hundred. Like you always want to. So, <laughs> so I guess talk to your ice tech. Cause I, I think often they're quite happy to let you practice on the crappy ice from the night before. But if they've kind of made it all nice for a league play, they don't want you like running the ice into the ground and undoing all their work. So 
communicate with your ice tech if you're going to go practice. That's my that's my advice. All right, Jonathan, uh, we'll get out of here. I'll just I'll, I'll give you this scenario. Okay, let's say that I've chose like I'm a club curler. My club gives me practice practice to access access to practice ice. I have decided during the course of this season I'm going to take advantage of that four times. Like what? Give me give me my four practices as someone who has never practiced before in his life. So I had four practice sessions and you're just working on improving your own game or do you have a team that's trying to do something? Improving my own game. All right. I would do, all right, here's the four things you should work on without even seeing you throw a stone. Or, yeah. Or even let's say, let's say you're a member of one of the, like the four new dedicated curling clubs that are opening here soon in the U S all right. And so you've got ice and you want the fourth thing. All right. The big four. Yes. Number one, balance. Number two, try to figure out a way to work on your line of delivery. If you can get cones or something else that gives you feedback on how your line is, I think some kind of line of delivery drills. Uh, number three is sweeping. So I think that double stone drill where you got a stone in each hand and you kind of slide up and down the ice working on your footwork, working a bit on your sweeping technique. Very good. And then number four, I think, is weight control. Um, so doing that progressive and regressive hog line, practicing your draws to the button. If you're with somebody and you can spend a bit of time thinking about your hit weights, I think I think the the, the really good weight to learn is maybe depending on your ice conditions, but let's just say it's like more, a good quality club ice. Practicing a 10 to 11 second hog to hog split on a hit, which is like what the pros would call control or the Scots would call barrier is like, it's like a nice control weight that lets you remove stones, but isn't so hard. Cause I, th- I think the big, a lot of club curlers overthrow their hits and like just learning like a nice control hit weight that can let you, and you learn to master that can kind of give you a lot more shots too. So weight control, balance, line delivery, sweeping. So dedicate one practice to each of those. All right. Perfect. And hey, we, we talked for less than an hour. How about that? It's, it's too bad. I could talk more in practice. <laughs> That'll never happen again. <laughs> All right. All right. It was good talking to you, man. This was great. Hopefully some people got something out of it. Um, uh, go back go back and listen to the episode we did with Stephanie Thompson. Um, she talks not just about practicing sweeping. Uh, also, if you remember Jonathan talking about those stabilizer muscles that are important in curling, she talks a lot about those during the, the episode that we did with her. We'll link it down in the show notes. So good luck to everybody um, as we hopefully get back on get back on the ice here in the next month or so. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon. 